listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. You may be seated. Thank you. Good morning, church family. Um, as many of you know, I'm a very big Boston Red Sox baseball fan, and I know... I know some of you are still struggling with last year's World Series, but to be really honest, as a Red Sox fan, as a Red Sox fan, that doesn't, that's not really like who the enemy is. So if you're a Red Sox fan, you know, the, the real enemy is the, are the New York Yankees. And um, that's this, this long-standing battle, these two extremes that exist. And just so you understand like how deep it is, there's a t-shirt that's really popular in New England that says this, yeah, my two favorite baseball teams are the Boston Red Sox and whoever's playing the New York Yankees. So that just tells you the depth of the passion that exists for it. I remember in 2003, the Red Sox and the Yankees were playing in a playoff game and I had a friend of ours that had gotten me tickets. We were like out in the left field bleachers in the old Yankee Stadium, which is a section of bleachers. They only opened up during the playoff games. Uh, the game was a far off distant memory from where we were sitting, but I was really careful because the bleacher seats at Yankee Stadium were famous for being a really rough pro Yankees crowd. So there's like no way I was wearing no Red Sox gear. I was not gonna let on that I was a Red Sox fan at all. And about two-thirds of the way through the game, the Red Sox catcher, Jason Veritek, lifts a home run right out into our area. And I went, yes! And then I go, what am I doing? <laughs> so it was a very scary moment. Um, but that's the level of extremes that can exist, right? So today we're going to be talking about a different uh, kind of extremes. And it's the extremes with which we as human beings tend to approach our relationship with God. And so over here on one extreme, you have a whole set of people that believe that it's what they do that's going to make a difference about whether God likes them or not. That the good things that they do are going to make God sort of respond to them and desire to have a relationship with them. And they're going to somehow please God through the good things that they're doing. Then over here on this other extreme are a set of people who believe, you know what, I just have to have said the right words, I have to have like prayed to ask Jesus into my heart, whatever that meant when I was eight years old and I got it covered, man, I am set for the rest of my life. It no longer matters what I do because everything's covered by grace. So we have these two kinds of extremes and at various points through the history of the church, sort of one extreme or the other has sort of been predominant and has been sort of the, the dominant way of thinking about relationships with God. And, uh, and both of these extremes exist in the world in general and they exist within the church as well. So if you think back through like church history, maybe one of the prominent times of this happening was during the period called the Reformation. Uh, Reformation took place just as the beginning of the Renaissance and it referred to this uh, emerging Protestant uh, movement that happened uh, coming out of a Catholic church that at the point uh, was very in this camp over here where you had to be doing the right things. You had to be buying indulgences for your dead relatives so that their time in a place called purgatory, which is this mythical place somewhere between heaven and hell, could be shortened. Or that you had to be saying the right prayers. Or you had to be doing the right things in order to have a relationship with God. And the Protestant reformers came along and said, whoa, 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 come back this direction. When you read God's word, it's clear you're only saved uh, through, uh, by grace through faith. And that's the, the means or method of salvation. 
So then you jump ahead. So that's the period of the Reformation. You jump ahead a couple hundred years, and you're in the beginning of the 1900s, maybe 1920s. You're at a point where, again, we sort of had pulled in this direction as well within some of our mainline uh, Protestant churches. And there was a sense that it was all about the social gospel. That was the most important thing is sort of what we were doing. But it wasn't terribly important necessarily of having any kind of real relationship with God. And again, people came along and said, whoa, 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 you got to come back here. There's something important that you need to believe. It's not just about what you do that's going to make you have, able to have a relationship with God. And then that sort of went the wrong direction because out of that movement came a lot of legalism. And it was tied up in these things where, you know, well, it wasn't just, you know, uh, having a relationship with God. It was the fact that you had to wear the right clothes or that you, uh, you know, uh, women couldn't have earrings or their hair couldn't be cut or uh, you had to go to church three times a week or whatever these things were. There were aspects of legalism that, again, were pulling people in this direction of saying it was about what we did that was going to make us have a relationship with God. And it shouldn't surprise us then if this has been going on through history, that the Bible would have to say something about it. So we're going to take a look at uh, James chapter 2, and we're going to be reading verses 14 through 26. We'll sort of break down the passage. We'll sort of uh, gain some interesting insights from it, and then we'll make some application of it as well. So James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead." So to understand this passage a little bit, let's break it down. When it's talking about faith in this passage, it's really referring to people that are over here in this kind of extreme on this end. It's this idea of just having a verbal assent to some theological concept or precept. This idea that I said the right words, I uh, believe that God exists, or I believe there is a God, or um, some, I accepted Jesus as my savior when I was a little kid or uh, any of these kinds of things that then had, was only essentially this verbal action that had nothing to do with how a person really would live. So when they talk about faith, you sort of have to understand it as James trying to pull people back from this extreme on this uh, end. Let's break down the passage a little bit though by uh, particularly looking um, at uh, beginning at verse 15. So it says there, 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Uh, this verse is, this, is an example of irony. The author is using irony to make a point. He's showing the ridiculousness of thinking that a verbal blessing will meet a person's real needs. The author does this to help us understand how ridiculous it is to have faith without works. That is to have a verbal assent to a doctrine, but then to not back it up with, how, with a life that is well lived. How we live is an outpouring of our faith. Uh, jumping down to verse 17, so he says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So faith without works is dead. I think that's a very interesting phrase, and I think he uses it on purpose. The idea of death, when you see it in Scripture, is this idea of an eternal separation from God. Right? You see that in Romans 6, 23, where he says, For the wages of sin is death. So the, the just consequence that what we deserve because of the bad things we do is death. And so it's really interesting. He uses it in this passage because he's saying the people that are over here that say, hey, I got it covered. I, you know, I prayed that little prayer when I was five years old. It's fire insurance, baby. I can live my life any way that I want. They're over here. And he's saying, no, you know what? That's just like you're going to experience death. That's dead. And you're going to experience that eternal separation uh, from God. Verse 19. It says this, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. To understand this, we have to understand who James's audience was. He was writing to a Jewish audience. And when it says, you believe that God is one, it's referencing what's called a Shema, which is this prayer that practicing Jewish people use and still use to this day. It's considered the foremost prayer. You would say it in the morning as you begin your day. So it was, is the central prayer to the Jewish faith. And it comes from Deuteronomy 6.4, which I'll read to you. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So that expression is the, the considered the central tenet to the Jewish faith. And so what James is pointing to in this passage is, yeah, you're like a whole bunch of other people that get up in the morning and you say that, but it's making absolutely no difference for how you're living your life. You're just, make, you're just giving verbal assent to some theological tenet or doctrine or position, but it, it's really not making a difference in who you are. Jumping down to verse 21, he brings up this story of, of Abraham. And what he's referencing there when he talks about Abraham offering up his son Isaac on the altar, late in Abraham's life, uh, he's commanded by God to take Isaac and bring him out into the wilderness and to sacrifice Isaac to him. And it's one of those passages, I think particularly as 21st century believers, that we look at and think, what is going on here, and, and how can this be a test of faith, and, um, and how difficult this is for us to understand. But what was really happening here is that God was going to show his strength and his power to Abraham. So when Abraham uh, is obedient to him to the point of being willing to sacrifice Isaac, God provides another means for him. He says, I, know, I now know the depth of your faith. Uh, I look in the bushes as a ram caught. Use that for your sacrifice. If we don't read this carefully, though, we'd look at it and think it was that action that helped Abraham be justified to have a relationship with God. And that's the way the people over in this extreme are going to look at it, right? They're going to look at it and say, see, he had to do that in order to be justified by God. But the expressions that are used in the verses after that, where it talks about um, uh, 
faith being active was his works, faith being completed as his works, the scripture was filled, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Those, those phrases and the fact even that he was called a friend of God, those are from earlier points in Abraham's life. Those are already true that God had already said were true about him before this action happens where Abraham is challenged to sacrifice Isaac on the altar and, and follows through in obedience to the point before God provides another way for him. So don't misunderstand this. Abraham had a relationship with God and then the evidence of that relationship comes in the fact that he was obedient to God and what God required of him. In verse 22, it uses another little expression there. It says, uh, and faith was completed by his works. The word completed here means brought to its fullness or to maturation. Uh, the idea is that faith that is real or genuine demonstrates its maturity by its works. So when, when we accept Christ as Savior, God puts his Holy Spirit into us in the purpose, the role of his Holy Spirit is to guide us into becoming more and more like Christ, to become more and more of who God wants us to be. And uh, that's what it's referring to in this passage is that same idea of being, becoming complete, of becoming mature. And that's uh, demonstrated by the works that we do uh, in response to what God has done for us. It finishes this little story of, of Abraham and uh, in verse 23, and says he was called a friend of God. It's a really interesting term. And I, I was thinking about it, well, you know, hey, it fits for James in this passage, right? But the reality is James gives this little picture uh, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, when you look in Scripture, there are at least two places in the Old Testament where God himself describes Abraham as being a friend of God. So it has, it's a term that has meaning to it. And I think we're going to look at this a little bit later, but this can be a guide to how we think about our relationship with God as well. I mean, shouldn't we be aspiring to be considered or to be called a friend of God? And then verse 26 sort of sums up this whole passage. Um, verse 26 says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So he's using this picture of us as human beings and saying basically in order to be alive, there needs to be a body and a spirit, right? That's sort of how we understand things uh, today as well. And he's saying as well is in order for faith to be real, in order for faith to be alive, it needs to be faith in works. That both elements are central and, and, and essential to this faith being alive. So let's, let's think about it. We've looked at this passage. We understand it a little bit more. Um, let's draw some conclusions from it and then see how we can apply those conclusions. So three conclusions that we can draw from this passage. One, there is no such thing as genuine faith that is not lived out in the actions or works of the believer. So what he's saying, what James is doing in this passage is he's responding to the individuals that are on this extreme who say it doesn't really, as long as I've said the right words, as long as I call myself a Christian, as long as I believe that God exists, that I can live my life any way I want. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's pulling this person back to the center and saying, hey, it does matter. The only genuine kind of faith uh, that exists is the faith that's lived out through the actions and works of the believer. 
Then the second thing, the second part of this uh, that comes out of this passage, the second uh, conclusion we can make is the good things that we do do not save us, nor do they help us gain God's favor. Because our tendency is when we react to this, that we start to be like, well, then I need to do this, and I need to do this, and I need to do this, and I need, and God's going to love me more if I'm just a little bit better than the person sitting next to me. That's not the way that God operates at all. It, God's word is clear. I mean, Abraham wasn't justified because of what he did. He already had a relationship with God that was based on God reaching out to him and pulling and drawing him close to himself. Our relationship with God is built on the fact that we're saved by grace, meaning that we don't deserve it, uh, through faith, through faith in God. And that's what our relationship is based on. And then the third conclusion is the good things that we do are a product of our relationship with God. They are a response to the grace that he has shown us. So I'm going to jump back to when God, uh, and James uses that expression, friend of God, because I think this captures a little bit about how we respond to this. Um, some of you might remember, because I think I shared this when Jody and I were talking about marriage a year or so ago, but when we were first married, uh, I remember having these radical conversations about the fact that we weren't going to be like, this is, you know, back in the day because we've been married a long time now, but uh, we weren't going to be sexist in our relationship. We were both working outside the home. Therefore, we should split the household chores 50-50. And, but I'll tell you, and, and, you know, we did, we worked at that, but I'll tell you, that was not the right standard because my focus, honestly, was on whether she was doing her 50% of the chores, that was really the problem. And I could point to the times where she wasn't doing the part that she should be doing on it. And then as we matured, praise God, um, as we matured, it became a very different standard. Our love drives this desire to do absolutely everything I can to support my wife, to support our household, to be part of sharing and all the duties. We don't think about that. I mean, literally, I can't think of the last time I had any kind of resentment on whether she did or did not do something in our house because we are tripping over each other to take care of the other person. I'm responding to the love that she has for me by doing absolutely everything I can to strengthen that relationship, to grow in that relationship, to show her I love her, and to do good things for her. And, I, and that's our relationship. Well, that, that was my wife clapping. No, not really. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I think in some kind of small way, this is exactly what God meant when he called Abraham his friend and what he wants for us in our relationship with him. The good things that we do are in response to what he has done for us. He has shown us his love. He's shown us grace when we did not deserve grace. He's given us mercy. And my response to that is not that, oh, I'm going to earn your favor. Uh, I'm going to try to do uh, good things so that you'll love me more. Uh, no, I'm not going to do good things so that you like me more than the person next to me or they're going to bless me in some kind of way. My response is, thank you, God, for what you've done. How can I serve you? I want to serve you more. And in some ways, I don't even think about it because I'm in, engrossed in this whole process of loving him more and being loved by him. And that's incredibly powerful. So... We've looked at it, and James responds to people in this extreme. 
I just want to make an application in a, in a lot faster fashion to another passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul responds to people that are on this other end because I want to see that there's this tension that exists between these two extremes. And we feel that tension ourselves. You can see it in Scripture too. So we're going to look at Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at the first uh, six verses particularly of the passage. Galatians chapter 5 uh, and the verse, first six verses. I'm actually going to read it from up here because I think the NIV does a better job than my English Standard Version does on this. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is ob obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision have any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So this is Paul responding to some people that were over here on this extreme. And what was happening is that in this area of Galatia, there were these Jewish believers that said, hey, it is great if you as, as uh, uh, Gentiles want to come to faith in God. That's a wonderful thing. But in order to, to be in a relationship with God, in order to please God, you must go through circumcision because that's a necessary thing to have a relationship with God. And Paul said, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're putting things into place. You're saying that in order for this person to have a relationship with God, there's something that they need to do, works that they need to do in order to gain God's favor in some kind of way. And he's basically reminding them, and this is really important, life over here where we're trying to earn God's favor, where we're trying to, uh, to be a little bit better than the person next to us and somehow get God to like us more is highly enslaving. It's absolutely impossible to live up to God's standard. And so what Paul's reminding you is God has called you to freedom. He's pulled you in this direction towards grace, uh, and, it, and he's done it for a reason, so that we can experience freedom. And so when you put, when you Galatians, when you put this extra rule into effect, you essentially are pulling people back into slavery to being obligated to the full law. So you can see, uh, in this, and it ends in verse 6, and I think this is actually the, the key to understanding the passage. And it says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts. Basically, nothing you do to earn God's favor makes any difference. Nothing's going to work in that regard. What does matter is that you have faith working its way out through love. Right? And that's just powerful in terms of it's pulling from this side that says it's faith that matters and it's working its way through love. It's this place of being in between uh, these two extremes. And what does he mean by that? If we look down at verses uh, 13 and 14, I think we get a really good picture of it. And for those of you reading on the screen, I didn't write it in there. Sorry. Sorry, James. Um, for you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You want to know how to battle between these two extremes? He's saying, don't be over here where you're like, hey, I said the right words. I'm going to live the way I want to live. I can do whatever I want. Don't be over here thinking that what you're going to do is going to make any difference to the extent to which God loves you. 
be here, where our actions, the good things we do, are driven by, are fostered by our result of God's love for us and our desire to respond in love to him. How do we do that? This passage says we love one another. That becomes the mark, becomes the, the means by which we exist between these two extremes. I was thinking about this in this passage, and I was really struck by the fact, if you're over here, and you're like, woo, woo, I get to do whatever I want, that's a highly selfish perspective. And uh, it tends to be built around my own satisfaction, what I can do for fun, um, you know, I've said the right words, I got the fire insurance covered, and all that kind of stuff. Well, over here is a little bit the same way as well. It's, it's usually self-righteousness, you know, it's usually around, well, I'm a little bit better than the other people around me, this is gonna make me okay with God. God's response to that is you get, my, you get yourself lined up with me where you're responding in love to what I've done for you, responding to my love for you, and then you exercise that, you live that out with your love one for another. I think it's very, uh, very powerful. And your little bonus thought for the day, verse 15 says, but if you bite and devour one another, this is right after he says to love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And so just think a little bit about that the next time you're going to post a political rant on Facebook, okay? That's your bonus for the day. <laughs> uh, three conclusions. There's no such thing as a genuine faith that is not lived out in the actions or works of the believer. The good things we do do not save us, nor do they help us gain God's favor. And the good things we do are a product of our relationship with God. They are a response to the grace that he has shown us. So as we conclude in this, how do we make some application to us? So, I think that each one of us tends towards one extreme or the other. We're probably not all the way over on that far end of the extreme. You're like, oh, I'm not like that, Brian. That's nothing that I'm like, or I'm not on this end. I'm not like that. But my true confession, my own personality, um, I definitely am the type that leans towards this side over here. This is my struggle because, you know, I'm fairly self-disciplined. I like working out. I, you know, I like trying to do the right thing. All of these things matter to me. What God had to show me is it doesn't matter. None of those things matter. Nothing you can do is gonna measure up to what my standards are for you. And for me, that was going through some really tough times in my life, particularly in college, where it really pointed me to the fact that everything about who I was was lost, broken, and needed to be repaired, and that could only happen through Christ. Some of you in this room may be where I am, and some of you may lean towards this end over here, where, hey, it doesn't really matter what I do. I'll, I'll go to church, you know, once, twice a month kind of a thing. I'm not really going to get engaged in any kind of way with, with fellow believers because that might be challenging or, you know, wherever it is, I, I said the right words. I'm okay. And maybe I'm not all the way over in this extreme sort of living this party lifestyle or whatever, but this is where you may lean as an individual. My challenge to you is to, to remember that everything about who we are is it, or should be responding, the actions that we do, the faith and the works that are lived out should be a response to God's love for us. God has given the ultimate sacrifice for each one of us. He had his son die on the cross to make possible our relationship with him. Uh, his son's blood was shed on our behalf. How 
how much shouldn't that, how shouldn't that, shouldn't that just drive us to um, desire to do his will in every aspect of who we are? And the description of that is it's a self-sacrificing kind of process. I have to reach beyond my natural self to love others in a way that would be challenging, difficult, and so on. And so my challenge for you is, you know, God, James is pulling us from this extreme. Paul's pulling us from this extreme here. Let's recognize this truth and apply it within our own lives as well. Let's close in a word of prayer as the, uh, as the worship team comes up again. God, why do we as human beings just tend towards these extremes? We want it to be about our terms and our definition of what it means to be in relationship with you, and yet your word has made it clear. It's not just saying the right words. It's not just um, some you know, magic words that we say that make us to be in relationship with you, nor is it the fact that, you know, uh, the, re, uh, the idea that anything we do can make us right before you, uh, the idea that I just have to be a little bit better than somebody else or a little bit better than I was yesterday, and none of that matters as well. God, you've made it so clear through your word that each one of us comes to a relationship with you because you draw us to you. Uh, you've made it possible for us to be in relationship because of the death of your son on the cross. And, and Lord, I just would ask that that truth would impact how we live our lives, that we would desire to uh, love you and serve you and love others because of what you've done for us, Lord. I just would ask that this, uh, uh, this passage would come alive for each person here today. It would make a difference in how each one of us lives our lives. And Lord, as our ushers come forward right now and we take our, our tithes and offerings, Lord, I just thank you that you've given us an opportunity through this to contribute to your work, whether it's here uh, through the mission, whether it's what we are doing with uh, moms with uh, age and HIV in Tijuana or the Shia family, Lord, and in their work working with refugees in, in Europe, Lord. These are opportunities for you to take the gifts uh, the money that you've given us and now we're, we're giving back to you to take those and maximize them for your kingdom's impact. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.